Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, hosted by Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine, and today I'm speaking with Nicole Deschino. Nicole is the Compliance Competitor, Head Writer, and a Principal Consultant at Spark Compliance. So I get to talk to a Sparky today. Before joining Spark, Nicole was a consultant and a former editor-in-chief for the Anti-Corruption Report. She is also now a self-proclaimed compliance training fanatic, and we'll get to what that means to her. As we're all looking for help and strategies in these areas, and I have been speaking with a lot of different experts as of late, so it's a perfect time to get to bring you in here and talk to Nicole. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast, and talk about your background and how you got into this. Thank you, Lisa. I'm so glad to be here. Really honored to be a part of this podcast. I was listening to some of your back episodes over the last few days as I prepared and really am honored to be amongst the women that you have chosen to highlight here. So thanks for having me on. I am, like you said, a compliance training fanatic. I like to think of myself as a creative thinker in this space. I am currently working as the head writer and head creative for Compliance Competitor, which is a training game that is was created by Christy Grant Hart from Spark. And I also do consulting work. So I help companies build and improve upon and run their corporate compliance function. Like many of us, I came to this world, like I, I believe you did, Lisa, through big law. I went to law school with the dream that I would be a trial lawyer, and I was a mock trial nerd in college and thought that I would be on my feet in a courtroom, and I joined a firm that is very well known for its trial work, Quinn Emanuel, and got staffed on a case that had 100 contract attorneys reviewing documents, so I learned quickly that civil litigation isn't really the place that you go to get on your feet experience, so I spent a few years as an associate at two different firms, really learning about what trial work looks like and decided to move towards the white collar space, thinking that I would get more on my feet experience there. So I spent some time doing investigations and corporate compliance defense, and then got a very unusual opportunity plunked in my lap to go to the anti-corruption report as a journalist and decided that I would take the leap. So I was there for eight years, and that led me into where I am now, working as a consultant. The anti-corruption report is terrific, too, and there are a lot of great women in compliance who have come out of there, so it's a great group. So what got to you from wanting to be on your feet in trial to being so passionate about compliance training, to becoming this compliance training fanatic you are today? So I think it really all goes back for me, finding my place here was about this combination. What I was really looking for from a career was the ability to be on my feet, talking with people on a regular basis, but also wanting my career to be in really engaging with other humans and thinking creatively on a regular basis. Um, so I hear many of you lawyers out there in your head going, and you thought you could do that as a lawyer? I did. I thought I could do that as a lawyer. But it turns out that compliance is the perfect place 
to do something that combines the public interaction aspect that I like with the real people-focused interaction. And training in particular is just so fascinating to me because it is our opportunity as compliance professionals to show our faces. For most people in the world who don't hang in our circles, who are not compliance professionals, not lawyers, their only interaction with their compliance department on an annual basis is their compliance training. They might have to fill out a conflict of interest form here and there. If they're a manager, we might touch them more than once, but a lot of what they see is what we present in training. And so for me, it's a place where we as companies and as a society can really make a difference. And frankly, I think we're often missing the opportunity to do that because we're attached to some old ideas of what compliance training needs to look like. That is really helpful. I think in that vein, as you talk about it, I also hope that people are trying to at least be a little, be seen a little bit more than, in my view, in investigations, because I do a fair amount of those in my role and in training. We hope that people know who they are or the rest of the time, but I completely agree with you that often this will be the only, you know, real contact they'll have to talk about ethics or compliance and engage in it. So in terms of doing that, what do you think is the most important aspect of training and learning and executing on that with business people who we are a must-do, not the, oh, it's super exciting to see you crowd. Absolutely. So I think one of the first things that I recommend to the people that we work with is addressing the issue that you just raised, which is that we are often only talking with people once a year. And so I think one of the first paradigm shifts that I recommend is to think about your compliance training program on a broader scale as your compliance education platform, your communication platform. So how are you building those touch points throughout the year so that people do know who you are and they know how to reach you when they want you to? So that's the first thing is find a way to be present more than in your annual e-learning. And that is easier said, not is easier said than done. It's not always easy to do. We have lean teams and we work really hard in the space company, but I think there's a lot of ways to communicate with people that don't require the lift of an annual company-wide training. That's the first thing. The second thing that I recommend is really to take yourself a little bit less seriously. So I'm a big believer that if people are having fun, they're going to not only learn, but also like you. And as I know we talked about when we were preparing for this, Lisa, and we'll probably talk more about later. I think a lot of what we're doing is winning hearts and minds. So yes, if I'm doing a training, I probably want people to understand that they shouldn't bribe people, but I also want them to know who I am, that I'm not just going to make them follow rules and that they can reach out to me if they don't know how to answer it. It's interesting because I feel like sometimes I can be a broken record on the sort of the one sentence in my mind of what we try to do, and people can have tons of views on this, but one is at the moment where you are stuck between two choices, one is business-focused and is a definite win to make money, and the other, which has some ethical challenges, or the other is doing the right thing and making a hard call, if our companies do it right, we have people who are empowered to do the latter and to get to that point. And how we get there can be lots of different things, but by having, as you're saying, by having some fun and also by being engaged shows people not only that 
who we are, but the organization supports that. So I think about that a lot. And when I think about winning hearts and minds, and do you think that kind of falls into there as well? Absolutely. So that idea that we can never train on every question that is going to come up. I obviously come to the compliance space with a anti-corruption bribery focus. And I can tell you from years of reading every bribery settlement that there was that people are really, really creative. Every time you shut down one compliance risk, someone else is going to decide to create a whole new scheme. And we are never going to be able to answer every question. But what we can do is give our team members the tools to go out into the world and to do what they need to do. And also the thing that I would add to that is to know when they don't know and that they need to ask for help. And that really is, I think, key to what we're trying to accomplish in training way more than trying to educate on one particular point of law or compliance. Yeah. I'm giving you all the Lisa Fine cliches today. The other one that I also like is in, in trainings when I'm involved in them, I say, I'm not, your job today is not to come out as being a compliance expert, but your responsibility is to know what red flags are and know when to reach out. And that really is, as you said, 80% of what we're asking people to do. Now with that, one of the ways you've been delivering that through Spark and also generally you've talked about compliance competitor and I have used it before a couple of times, once with targeted questions, another time with at SCCE. Can you talk a little bit about what it is? And then we can t- have a little bit of a discussion about the way it works generally, too, because it's a very interesting approach. Absolutely. So I love Compliance Competitor, which anyone who has stopped me knows. And I love it not just because it is a product that I'm involved with, but I just really love the shift to approaching training in a more creative way, whether it's with competitor or through other means. So what Compliance Competitor is, it's a live facilitated compliance training game. So we take hypothetical scenarios that might occur at your business, and we turn them into training scenarios. So your employees work as a team to discuss the compliance and ethics scenario and choose the best possible answer to move forward. And I think Lisa, we make her very uncomfortable because one of the tricks in the compliance competitor world is there are no right answers. Employees are really asked to choose the least worst course of action or the best possible course of action, but we never give them the actual right course of action as an option. I don't actually have, it's funny, we were going to talk about this. I actually do not have a problem with the least wrong answer. The challenge is with part of with what I saw with compliance competitor is you're then told afterwards how it impacts your share price, what what happened, and, it, and I've got the little air quotes going. So what has happened that not so much makes me uncomfortable, what I have seen and I've heard it from other people is the, wait a minute, I can tell you which one is the least wrong, and I'd like to tell you why it's the least wrong, but I'm still going to get dinged for it. And dinged. And at the same time, you get through the whole thing and it says, you might have been terminated from your employment for it. And the person saying in the compliance competitor, but wait, that's not what I wanted to do. That's, I think it brings on, it has great discussions. I, so I'm not uncomfortable from the answers, but I can see the, I think the frustration is a great discussion point, but I also worry when the people are talking about it, they're like, we had one group just protest. Um, and I think yeah. you've had that too. 
I think or maybe we protested. I can't remember, but something along those lines. So to give people who haven't played the game a bit more background, basically what we're asking people to do is to confront a compliant situation as the protagonist and to decide how to move forward. And the idea of not having the right answer involved grew out of realizing how simple the right answer usually is. It often involves call compliance and ethics, speak up, talk with your manager, pause before doing anything further. All of those things that we're trying to communicate and the trouble with giving that right answer is that people raise their hand immediately. They're like, I know, I'm supposed to call compliance. But what we're seeing in the real world is that people just aren't always doing that. And I, many people do get very frustrated. And we've toned it down a bit, I think, since Lisa was part of our beta testing group. And we've really been working on figuring out how to tweak the answers in a way where what is happening by asking people to consider mediocre answers to their compliance problem is they're having to think critically about how their behavior impacts what the company is doing. And we do try and reward the least right answer. So while there are often compliance consequences, even when compliance comes in after bad behavior and does the right thing, our companies often do suffer consequences. So those may still be there. Uh, but we make sure that our least worst answer, people aren't receiving personal consequences, which I think might be the least defined contribution to compliance competitor. But what I really love about the answers being more complicated is that critical thinking and engagement, talking about what is the right thing to do. And it's interesting. People get really passionate. I have a client right now who told me, she called me to tell me, she had someone come in from a training six months ago, walked <laughs> into her office to say it was answer A was the best right answer. And I love that. I love that someone is still thinking about her compliance training six months later. And I will be very happy with the Lisa, if that's a Lisa fine modification. And I wasn't even unhappy before because it was such great discussion. And I think that's what I also wanted to get to in it is the discussing of the substance of these not exactly right answers. It's also easier when you're looking even at a hypothetical. In hindsight, at that moment, you often are trying to figure out what's the least damaging thing. Unfortunately for us, it's usually after something occurs. But from the business people's standpoint, I mean, I think company and reputational risks are critically important at all times. I thought it was, I just thought in all candor is that it was just a little hard if somebody tried to do the right thing to then see, even if they legitimately required the least worst answer. I think, though, I guess we want to encourage people to reach out. We don't want people to ever think that, which is something that you all were trying to do, too. It's also, though, the truth is in some of these situations, there are no ways to avoid that. Absolutely. And really knowing, I think one of the things I love to talk about when I'm training, not just the competitor, is this idea that you can often accidentally make things worse. Mm -hmm. And I think that happens a lot at our companies, right? When we've made a mistake or someone we care about has made a mistake or we're busy and in a really well-meaning way, our employees do things like try to gather more information 
or try to handle the matter themselves by talking to someone. And what they end up doing is making an even bigger mess. And I think it's also a really good opportunity to think by, by making the answers complicated, we think about things like how we're motivating our employees. Uh, so I think another reason people choose non-compliant behavior is because we as companies are accidentally giving them the motivation to do without either without realizing it or without taking it really into full consideration. Yeah, exactly. And this can doesn't just apply to competitors. Any hypothetical situation that people are using, whether I'm a huge proponent of breakout groups in any training so that people can talk. And I find it fascinating to listen to the discussions that people are having as they talk through these things. When it's the right kind of hypothetical, people get very engaged and they're talking among each other. And what I find most interesting is what I learned from it, is how people are thinking about these things because we also get in our blinders when we're working on and doing training. These are the things I need this group of people to know. And then you listen to the people talking about something they bring in something completely different, but yet completely logical from a business view standpoint. And I think I learn a ton from that thinking like that never occurred to me and things like that, which I think is a really good part of the encouraging discussions from them instead of hearing yet another thing from me. hundred percent. And I think it, obviously that's what we do in competitor, but it's what I help companies do in a lot of ways in training, whether it's live training, small group training, internal investigations training, it's how are you asking your trainees to critically engage in the training? That's how we get people off their phones. That's how we get people off their email. And we actually get them in the room, which is the first step to learning. We get their heads in the game. That's not an easy thing to do in a society where our email is constantly beeping and we're used to things moving very quickly. And I think hypothetical scenarios are one really great way to do that. But there's lots of ways to do that in training yeah. where you ask your people to participate actively in the training and to think critically. Yeah. I always find it very interesting how when people will start from not being engaged to suddenly there's a discussion and this one person will be on their phone and they'll just pick up their head because something will bother them. And next thing, they're somehow managing to leave this like they couldn't help themselves. And that's usually a good sign. And of course, there are sometimes the other times where you say, I'll have to listen to myself. But I think anything we can do to minimize that and seem approachable and take feedback is important. Absolutely. Last question, we didn't, haven't talked about it as much, but in terms of getting feedback for a training session or learning and development, what do you think is the best approach and what you can and can't take from it? Somebody writes you, I'm not interested in this. It's like, you can't, suddenly make everybody be as excited about compliance as in ethics as the two of us are on this call. What's your view on how to best get feedback and what's most important? So I'm a big fan of doing a combination of sort of the scaled answers where you can get a feeling from people about how much they thought they learned combined with an open answer. I think the really terrifying thing about training and the reason that I'm so passionate about finding different ways to do it is 90% of employees report that they learn nothing from their compliance training. And I've said that statistic hundreds of times, and it makes me nauseous every day that I'm only, that many of us are only reaching one out of 10 people with our training is really scary and should be scary for companies. And so 
I think giving people the opportunity to tell you if they feel like they learned something is huge because they might not be interested. They might have thought it wasn't particularly insulating, but really making sure that they are learning. And then also just thinking about your audience and how you can try to make it more interesting. So I often start my training by telling people, I hope that I'm going to give the least boring compliance training that they've ever had. And I hope that that's a low bar, but also it is, I recognize that we are giving training on areas that people might not be super interested in. I can confess that I've not always been excited about receiving my HR training, but that doesn't mean that you can't engage people and present something that at least captures their attention for the time they have to be with you. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And it also is going to be a little bit of a segue for me. And I had a funny thing happen the other day in a meeting and it'll, where someone was talking about communicating and lessons learned and other things. And they said, and one part of this panel was talking about Gen X and how to reach out to Gen X. So I immediately, as a Gen Xer, immediately popped up and said, wait a minute, really? Usually we're the forgotten group. And I meant Gen Z. I said, I knew it. I knew it. But with that said, they really, Gen Z, the end of the millennials or the zillennials, they really are the, the sort of the new era and not to completely feel super old, but I think that communicating with them and for ethics and tra- compliance training, how do we make that resonate with them? What, because those are the people that we want to start being more engaged in organizations and seeing our positives. And I think people, that, that generation is trying to really do a lot of good. So how do we best harness that and work with it? I spend a disproportionate amount of time hanging out with folks in the Generation Z and Zennial group. I have three nieces who are entering the workforce or new to the workforce in their 20s. And we, I spend a lot of time talking with them about their experience. And I think one of the things that I have found most effective with working with that group is really to mean what you say and to not waste their time, even more than those of us in Gen X, which I am also, I make it by eight days. I'm not a millennial, I'm a Gen Xer. But I think one of the main things is understanding how much information people in Gen Z are consuming on a regular basis. And so if you want to get and hold their attention, you need to, what you need to be doing is interesting and it needs to be relevant to them. So I think this applies to all employees, but with this generation, I think making sure that your training and communications are tailored and relevant to the job descriptions that you're giving the training to can really make a difference because they can be a bit of a cynical group. They don't want their time wasted and they know that companies don't always mean what they say. So I think don't waste their time and mean what you say goes a long way. Yeah. I think, and that comes again to, can we win their hearts and minds? I think we can get there, but I think that it has to be more than pretty words on a page. If you've hung out with me, you've heard me say, everybody says they value integrity, which makes me sound terribly cynical, but also it's pretty true. Lots of companies can say in their code of conduct that they value integrity, 
but what are you doing beyond your policies, beyond your procedures as a company to show what you value and to really live up to those values? And I think that's how you win hearts and minds and will hopefully, I think it's a great change in our corporate culture and our culture in general. Hopefully that will move us to a situation where working is something that is continuing to contribute to the world and we can feel good about the companies that we're working for. Yeah. I, I think think a lot of companies really try to do that. I think we're all spinning after years of all these different things, but hopefully we can use some of the different tools that we've talked about today and being open with those different people in different generations, including Gen X. We'd like to not be forgotten quite yet. <laughs> we're still here. We're here. So... I mean, with that, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I always get, I really love the opportunity to see you in person. And on behalf of Mary and me and the Compliance Podcast Network, thank you, Nicole. And thank you to Spark and the women-owned company that you are for being great women of compliance. So have a great rest of your day. So, thanks so much, Lisa. Great to be with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.